What It Takes is brought to you by AES, a Fortune 500 global energy company. Together with its customers, AES is setting a new standard for the future of energy to create a 100% carbon-free world. AES partners with organizations, no matter where they're at in their energy journey, to co-create the greener, smarter energy solutions the world needs. AES's team of more than 500 clean energy innovators in the U.S. find solutions that are both economically viable and environmentally friendly. AES is also walking the walk to achieve net zero carbon emissions from electricity sales by 2040. Learn more about how AES can empower you to achieve your energy goals and create the energy future we all need at AES.com. What It Takes is also brought to you by DLA Piper, a full-service global law firm that works with leading technology companies and their investors to meet all their legal needs. DLA Piper has been instrumental in Powerhouse's growth, as it has been for hundreds of companies changing the way we power our world. DLA Piper has lawyers in 40 countries across the Americas, Middle East, Africa, and Asia Pacific, wherever you're doing business. DLA Piper delivers value to its clients. It helps startups go from garage to global, and it helps established technology companies to grow smartly. You can subscribe to DLA Piper's thought leadership events and publications at dlapiper.com. I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse. This is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our zero carbon future a reality. In this episode, my conversation with Kathy Zoy, the CEO of EVGo, one of the country's largest electric vehicle charging networks. Kathy has seen it all. She studied and worked in oil, gas, and clean energy since the Reagan era. Now at the helm of EVGo, she's convinced that the future of mobility is coming fast. Kathy was on the team that developed the original Energy Star rating when she worked at the Environmental Protection Agency, and she was chief of staff in the White House Office on Environmental Policy in the Clinton-Gore administration. And she's the co-founder and executive chairman of Odyssey Energy, a software startup bringing distributed clean power to developing countries. In this interview, I spoke with Kathy about the journey that inevitably led her to electric transportation. This conversation was recorded in front of a live remote audience at the end of 2020. I know your dad worked as an engineer at the phone company Bell, and he was the first person in his family to go to college on a United Steelworkers scholarship. He and your mom met at Penn State, where she wanted to study medicine, but apparently her dad, your grandfather, said, no, no, don't do that. Just study liberal arts so you can get married and have kids, which she did. But then when you were in middle school, she went back to school to become a certified public accountant and started working full time. How did your parents' careers and how did their values shape who you are? Yeah. I mean, both of my parents were really, really busy. So my father, I remember every night when he came home from work, he would also have a briefcase that was full. So after dinner, he would go sit in his red chair and do his homework while I (laughs) sat there and my sister sat there doing our homework. So there was very much of that sort of work ethic. And with respect to my mom, even when my mom was at home full time, she was also really, really busy. I mean, I remember as a child, all of my clothes were homemade, home sewn because she was a very good seamstress. And I remember it sounds so odd now thinking, mom, why can't I have a store-bought dress? Can you believe it? But anyway, so she was really, before she went back and got her CPA degree, she was also really, really busy. And I think that sort of work ethic has certainly translated into how I view my workday. Makes sense. Um, I know you had an early appreciation for the natural environment, and so you went on to earn a Bachelor's of Science in Geology from Duke University. What drew you to geology and the environment? 
Yeah. I, I, um, when I was uh, about 12, our next door neighbors had left Wilmington, Delaware, where we were living and had moved to Los Angeles. And I really wanted to go visit them. So I saved up a bunch of money to buy. I thought I was buying the whole plane ticket. I'm sure my parents <laughs> helped subsidize it partially. But I bought this plane ticket, flew across the country at age 12 by myself. Wow. And flying over the vast expanse of America, and particularly over the American West, where mm. you look down and you see the geological formations and the meandering streams and the and the the rocks. And, and, and I'm sure probably in retrospect, I flew over the Grand Canyon. I didn't mm. know at the time. And it was just so majestic and magnificent. I thought, how did this all come to be? And that really was how, you know, even as a 12-year-old, I got started to get interested in geology. The summer before your senior year in undergrad, like many of your ge geology classmates, you ended up working for an oil company in their exploration department doing mapping. How did that experience influence your path? Yeah, well, so, so Emily, this was like 1982. This is before there was 3D seismic. We were just literally raking over the same, you know, sort of hot spots of West Texas and South Dakota that exploration geologists had been looking at for decades. And we were punching dry holes. All we wow. were doing was punching wow. dry holes. Just hit or and, miss. Where do and you I, find something? Yeah. And I thought, you know what? There's got to be a more interesting, better energy future for us. And that's mm. truly when I got excited about mm. energy sources that don't run out, like solar and wind. <laughs> um, and, and as Al Gore would say, that was probably a pre-dawn idea in 1982. <laughs> but that was the beginning of my path away from geology, straight geology, and into um, renewable energy sources. Mm -hmm. And that actually made you switch uh, uh, focuses of your educational path. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. My, I mean, my geology professor, my advisor as an undergrad said, you know, you've got to go on and get your PhD in geology. That's what you mm -hmm. do. And I said, no, that's not what I'm going to do. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm going to actually f figure out a way to deploy new resources. And that means I'm going to go do engineering and, and look, at, look, at, look at systems that can actually get renewables and other and energy efficiency out as part of the energy portfolio and the energy mix. Got it. And this was early in the renewable days. We're talking uh, like 1985, you ended up earning a master's of science in engineering from the Thayer School of Engineering at Dartmouth. But this was during the Reagan administration. How did your time at Thayer change your tra trajectory? Yeah, well, when I had gone off to Dartmouth, I thought for sure my graduate thesis would be in, in solar or wind. And the Reagan administration had come in and had cut the funding for clean energy sources, mm -hmm. um, had disbanded the Solar Energy Research Institute, mm -hmm. what is now an NREL, but it was called SARI back then, um, mm -hmm. had stopped the energy efficiency programs at the Department of Energy. And basically, there wasn't funding for graduate students wow. like me. Wow. So my thesis ended up being in um, natural gas, which uh -huh. is okay. Um, uh -huh. The impact of deregulating prices at the wellhead on on costs for consumers, and and uh, and I and I actually participated in the Harvard study of the future of natural gas policy that was going on in 1984 mm -hmm. and 85, and it was fine. But there was no funding support for clean energy then, hmm. so we we had to wait a while. Yeah, yeah. Um, and studying engineering uh, at Dartmouth in 1985. I can imagine there weren't very many women in the program. Is that true? And, and what was it like as a woman in the program? Yeah, um, there were probably about, it was a small program. There were 20% of us. Maybe there were two out of the 10 in, our, in my cohort were women. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But, but it, in an academic setting, it didn't, it didn't matter much. I mean, I truly mm -hmm. didn't notice that I was, uh, there were very few women in energy until I got to Silicon Valley much, much, much later in my career. You know, I'm reflecting on that percentage, and I'm pretty sure it hasn't changed for our industry. I think our industry, meaning solar renewables broadly, is still about 20% women, which is kind of depressing. <laughs> well, but interestingly, and again, here's a boost for Dartmouth, uh, about 
two or three years ago, Dartmouth was the first accredited engineering school in the country to graduate more than 50% women in its graduating wow, class. So, so Dart, Dartmouth, Dartmouth has been very much leaning forward on this and has been doing a great job. I mean, I'm, I'm really, really a big booster for their work here on, on gender stuff. That's awesome. Um, I know your first job out of Dartmouth was at PG&E in the economic forecasting department working as an end-use forecaster for new power plant projects. Uh, PG&E is also where you met your husband. Uh, and together you moved to D.C. where you served as a manager and then a director at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency for four years. What was the political climate around climate change like at that time? Was it even being talked about enough at all? And if so, how? Well, the group that I joined at the EPA was um, tasked with working on the um, on the phase out of ozone depleting chemicals. So that was mm-hmm. accepted and well understood. Mm-hmm. By by working with those scientists at NASA and NOAA that had done the work on on the ozone hole, they the folks at EPA learned that actually the bigger problem that was coming was mm-hmm. climate change. Again, this is mm-hmm. this is the this is the early this is the early eighties, right? Or the mid eighties, and and so we started a number of projects to reduce greenhouse gas emissions because the scientists are telling us we need to get moving on this. Meanwhile, George Bush the elder was president and his chief of staff was a climate denier. I mean, it was, that wasn't even a term of art then, but he mm-hmm. was. He said there's no such thing as climate change. Mm-hmm. So we just sort of, in an almost in an underground way, designed programs that would reduce greenhouse gas emissions, but that would also save people money on their energy bills. Yeah. So energy yeah. efficiency is what we were really leaning into. Interesting. Which leads perfectly into the Energy Star program, which you pioneered at EPA. Um, It provides information on energy consumption projects. If any of us look at our appliances in any of our homes, we will see that Energy Star on the appliance. Since 1992, Energy Star has helped families and businesses save save more than 4 trillion kilowatt hours of electricity and achieve over 3.5 billion tons of uh, metric tons of GHG reductions. Most people don't know about the history of the program or your role in it and the fact that it actually started with portable computers, now known as laptops. What role did laptops play? And in this massively successful program in the early days, did you ever think it was going to fail or was it just always kind of a clear shot to success? Yeah, well, so we were, we had, um, my little group at EPA had already designed a very cool program to get energy efficient lighting deployed more widely. And my boss at the time noticed that the large, the fastest growing load, energy load in the commercial sector were computers. And again, they were desktop computers, these big thumping mm-hmm. things that most people your age on this call, Emily, wouldn't even <laughs> recognize, big cathode ray tubes. But they were energy hogs, number one. Number mm-hmm. two, Folks were afraid to turn them off at night because they thought their data would get lost. Uh-huh. So it was like leaving lights on around the clock. So my boss uh-huh. said, hey, Kathy, why don't you design an education program so people realize they're not going to lose their data? Well, I had hired this young engineer or this young, this young guy out of Duke um, and who, was, who was like 21 or 22. And, and, I, and he and I put our heads together and he said, you know, maybe rather than trying to convince people to, to turn off their computers, because we know how well that worked with lighting, which it didn't. Mm-hmm. Maybe what we do is we go see if the computer companies can take the technology that they use for what you say, portable computers, which were mm-hmm. really like bricks, um, which mm-hmm. became laptops. That technology actually has a power management feature, which to conserve the battery makes, the, makes that portable computer go to sleep after a period of inactivity. Mm-hmm. What if we see if the computer companies will put that same power management function into mm-hmm. desktop computers, which everybody had at that point? We said, well, let's give it a try. So we went to talk to Apple. We went to talk to IBM, two of the market leaders back then in desktop computing. And we said, look, we'd like you to do this. And they said, why would we do this? And we said, because we're from the EPA and we'll give you an environmental good guy sticker to, mm. to, and so that you can sell more of this environmentally friendly technology. 
And so they said, okay, we'll do this. And we designed an, an Energy Star logo. And the, um, we had, we, then we needed to figure out whether we could get all of the computer industry on board. And interestingly and not surprisingly for anybody who works on policy, the, the trade association operating in Washington, D.C., um, tried, first tried to kill it, but huh. the, the, uh, because they didn't, I mean, they, it was basically, don't regulate us. We said, this isn't regulation. This is a voluntary program. Anybody can do this. Um, they weren't successful. We brought them around. Um, and then, then, so it was all, it was all go. And, and again, the, the Bush administration in George Bush, the elder was, was president. They were excited about this. It was huh. a voluntary program that was going to, mm-hmm. that was going to save, you know, prevent pollution. And the last step before we sort of announced this thing was I had to go see the lawyers at the EPA and, and say, okay, I've got this logo. We're going to put it on all of this equipment that will prevent pollution. And the lawyer said, you can't do this. I said, what? I said, the entire industry is on board. The White House is on board. It's like, no, EPA doesn't acknowledge, you know, doesn't endorse particular products or services. And I, I, I was devastated. This is after months and months and months of work. And I walked back to my office and I said to my boss, I said, it's over. He said, what do you mean it's over? I said, it's over. It's just done. It's finished. He said, why? I said, the lawyers told us we can't do it. He's like, what do you mean? I said, the, the lawyer downstairs on the third floor said, we can't, EPA doesn't do this. He said, oh, Kathy, don't be ridiculous. I said, what do you mean, John? He said, go ask another lawyer. He said, what? He said, EPA has dozens of lawyers. Go ask a different lawyer. So I did. I went back and I asked a lawyer, happened to be a woman. She's like, look, you know, we've never done this thing before, but I bet if we have a little disclaimer on it, we can get it done. And so actually she's a hero and I don't actually remember mm. her name, but, mm. but if she hears this, thank you. Um, <laughs> because this, in the first few years that the Energy Star logo was used on computers and then on printers and photocopiers and everything else, there's a little tiny bit of print that says, under the, under the Energy Star logo that says, the EPA does not endorse particular products or services. <laughs> so anyway, I, I mean, uh, that has informed my feeling of there's always a zigzaggy path through the bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. And there's always a lawyer who's going to try to be creative and be a yes lawyer and not a no lawyer. <laughs> yeah. I think my absolute favorite piece of research in preparing for this conversation was trying to understand when you had your two kids. Uh, and so I have a note from you that says that your second child, uh, Susha, is that right? Susha, yeah. Susha. Susha and the Energy Star program were, as you described it, gestating concurrently, um, which I just love that description. Uh, what was it like being a parent of two while at the EPA? And then you mentioned that you sort of had a different experience uh, being being a woman in the industry at the EPA or, or in academia versus in Silicon Valley. Um, so first, yeah, what was it like being a parent at EPA? And then second, how does your experience uh, being a woman in the industry differ between academia and maybe uh, DC versus Silicon Valley? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was, I, I still remember being pregnant with Susha with this big giant belly sitting across the table from members of the computer industry negotiating the definition of a low power state for Energy Star computers. Um, so they were, they were born, Energy Star and Susha were born at about the same time. Um, <laughs> the, the, US, the U.S. government, I mean, in, in, in my adulthood, has been very, very supportive of women professionals and of, and of parents writ large. Mm-hmm. I mean, both my, but my husband and I were, were young parents. We, we became parents in our 20s. We mm-hmm. loved being parents in our 20s. He was working for a branch of Congress at that point Mm -hmm. in Washington, D.C. I was working for the U.S. EPA. And both of those organizations were very, very supportive Mm -hmm. of parenting and of families. And and as a great testament and a tribute to to U.S. government. Um, In contrast, I mean, again, I didn't, I wasn't conscious of being a professional woman, even as a minority woman in energy until I moved to Silicon Valley. And it, it was, it was maybe less about Silicon Valley 
um, I moved to, after I left the Obama administration, I moved to Silicon Valley as an investor. It was more about the investment world. I found mm. actually investing, and that's probably true in New York City or in Silicon Valley, and there weren't very many women professionals in the investment world. And still true. Not, <laughs> it's still, still, still probably true. Still probably true. I mean, my kids were, were grown then, so it was less, it had less of a personal impact on me, but I could imagine if you were a young woman in investing and you're thinking about having a child, there aren't, there aren't enough role models around you and support structures to make you feel completely comfortable that you're not going to be giving something up on your career path. Absolutely. After working at the EPA, you went on to serve as chief of staff for environmental policy in the Clinton White House. Uh, what did your time in government teach you about the role of policy in addressing the climate crisis? Um, yeah, two early lessons. One of them is from the original executive director of the Solar Energy Industries Association, mm. whose name is Scott Sklar. And I remember being thinking when I went over to the Clinton White House, oh, now it's all going to happen. You know, this is, you know, we've got this president who's got this vision and this vice president who's got this vision, and now we're going to get it all done. And I forget exactly what it was, but something that we thought for sure was a slam dunk didn't happen. And I remember mm. putting my head in my hands and saying to my friend Scott of SIA, it's like, I can't believe we couldn't get this done. He said, Kathy, 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 it's really easy to stop things. It's really hard to get them through. You only have, one, have to have one powerful player to stop things. So that my first lesson about policy mm-hmm. was it's easier to stop things than to get them through. But the second thing is, if you get something through, the leverage that, that it creates in the marketplace is profound. And that, that's with respect to a tax incentive, a tax program that we're all familiar with in, in sort of solar and wind or with, or with appliance efficiency standards, you know, cafe standards, all of those things, they're hard fought, but they can create the safe haven for capital so that we actually leapfrog in terms of our progress. So that, that's sort of what I learned. And I, and I you know, I, I, when I was teaching at Stanford, I used to encourage my students, like, look, go do a tour of duty in government service because you'll see how incredibly important it is and how much impact you can have if you do that. Hmm. I was doing an interview yesterday and said that for any investor who says, oh, the government should just get out of the way and let me do my job as an investor, they haven't been in the industry very long. They just, you know, don't know the history of the kind of work that you did and pioneered that has enabled the industry to be what it is today. Um, I'm going to summarize the next 13 years because you did a lot leading up to EVgo. Um, I'll see how many breaths I need to do it. But you lived in Australia for six years, served as CEO and ED of a couple of organizations. In 2007 to 2009, you served as CEO of the Climate Reality Project, this really amazing group founded and funded by Al Gore uh, to bring uh, attention to the climate crisis. In 2009, you served as the DOE's Undersecretary for Energy and Assistant Secretary for Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy during the Obama administration, where you've oversaw more than $30 billion in energy investments. In 2011, you left DOE to become a partner at Silver Lake, a global tech fund that did more than $60 billion or had more than $60 billion in combined assets under management. And then in 2015, you became CEO of Frontier Power, a subsidiary of SunEd. In 2016, you founded Odyssey Power, a global platform to reduce the cost of developing and financing microgrids. So you have worked across utilities, the federal government, nonprofits, corporations, venture capital, and startups. There are very few people, if any, who I know who have had that much cross-sectoral experience. If you had one takeaway from having so much experience across so many sectors, what would it be? I think I would say is that every experience I've had has helped 
helped equip me for the next set of challenges that come with a new role. And that's mm-hmm. magnified by having the experience in different sectors. So mm-hmm. there's, there's no company that I've ever worked in that hasn't had to deal with the public sector and with civil society. Mm-hmm. So having had experience being in the public sector or as leading, leading an NGO is incredibly helpful as you're trying to get deals done. I mean, what, what, look, what all of us are doing in clean energy is we're trying to accelerate a transformation. We need to get a lot of folks on board to be able to do that. Understanding the perspectives of those people is so helpful at being able to reach agreement and, 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 and transform something. So I, I, ju- I just think that, you know, like the only decision, the only permanent decision you make in your life, my brother-in-law once told me is to have a child. Everything <laughs> else you can, you can sort of, you can do for a while and do it well and then go on and do something else. I would, I would encourage people to, even if you fancy yourself as an, as, oh, I'm a nonprofit person, mm. take a tour of duty, go, go, go work in government or go work for a company for mm. a while. If you're, mm. if you're, if you're a, if you're a business person, you're like, oh, I would never, I would never go work at an NGO. Give it a try. I think fellowship programs where we can cross fertilize will help us get more done more quickly, more effectively. Wow. Well said. This is more of a high voltage round question, but I'm curious if you had to choose one of those sectors to work in for the rest of your life, I know you're, you're in the private sector now, but what would it be? Oh, I love what I'm doing right now. I am having an <laughs> absolute ball. So I think I'd be private sector. Um, so EVGO started in 2010 and you were not the founder, but in 2017, you got a call to see if you wanted to come, uh, to join the company as CEO, who called you and why did you say yes? Uh, an old friend of mine, Ruben Munger, who is a founder and managing director of a growth equity firm focused on sustainable assets called Vision Ridge Partners. Ruben called me and Ruben said, uh, I, boy, have I got an offer for you. And I said, what is it? And he said, can you take the reins at EVGO? I said, where is it? And he said, Los Angeles. And my husband was off in the corner saying, I said, where exactly in Los Angeles? LA is a big sprawl. And I was living yeah. in the Bay Area at the time. And he gave, he gave the address and Robin Googled these like, oh, Santa Monica. So I said, well, okay, Santa Monica sounds good. Um, but so that's sort of part of it. But more than the lifestyle part, I, I, was, I was enticed because You'll remember, Emily, that in 2016, it was the first year that greenhouse gas emissions from, from the power sector became lower than the transportation sector. Or said another way, transportation mm. sector emissions were rising, rising, rising too quickly, yeah. unabated. And so I thought, look, we, we've got a lot of work to do across the board here, um, but I've never spent... I've never been in and only in the transportation sector. When I was at DOE, I dealt with car, the, the auto sector and car efficiency and batteries, but I never had been dedicated to it. That is really a good, important new challenge. And maybe, maybe my experience can be helpful, useful. So when Ruben called and said, do you want to move to LA, to Santa Monica um, and, and, and take the reins? I said, yeah, let's give this a go. Wow. Wow. Was it a hard decision? No, not really. I mean, you know, I, it, it, you know this gets back to you asking me all these questions about my childhood. I moved <laughs> a lot. I, as a kid. Yeah. So, so I think I have in my DNA, I have wanderlust. I am, in, you know, mm. I'm curious about the next thing. I'm, I want to, I want to try to tackle the next thing. And to me, this giant mountain of how are we going to make the transportation sector sustainable, clean and electrify it? It was like this next new mountain to climb. Like, let's yeah. go. Yeah, I love it. I know from experience that it is really hard starting a company and I can imagine it's even harder coming into an existing company, um, especially if you come in knowing that you're going to have to make some big changes. What was it like coming into EVGO as a non-founding CEO and what did you do first? It, it is kind of daunting. You've got an existing, an existing team and, and existing sort of systems and processes and a whole bunch of deliveries. I mean, we had, we had 
to, to build a whole bunch of charging stations for the California Public Utility Commission quickly. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's not as if you can go in and just kind of have two weeks of offsites and figure out what your plan is. You have to build the plane while you're flying it. But what I, what I tried to do first was listen and, and understand, again, humbly knowing that I'm new to this sector. I don't know who our counterparties are. I don't know how we do what we do. And so listen. Um, I guess the next thing I did, I said, after I listened, listened for a while and made sure that, the, that we were ticking things over, um, came up with some principles. Well, and my principle was basically... Uh, you know, I, I, I apply Warren Buffett math. So like when I was a kid, my father was, a, you know, was a huge fan of Warren Buffett. And he used to tell me about the wisdom of Warren. And, and he said, Kath, you know what Warren says a good business is? And I said, no, dad, what, what does he say? <laughs> He's like, okay, a good business is A, you have something that people want to buy. B, um, your revenues exceed your costs. And C, your revenues are growing and your costs are declining. So that sounds really simple, but that was a, that was a principle. Like I was kind of a mantra that I applied at EVgo really early. Um, and then we just then started organizing the company to do that. So there were, everybody in the company has something to do with either increasing our revenues or decreasing mm-hmm. costs. And, and so just organizing that mantra and getting people marching in all the same direction, you know, that's what I did. I know today there are over 150 employees at EVgo, and only 10 were members of that original team when you joined. Um, tell me about that team transition, and then what was it like to to take that on? Um, I mean, I think you know we've grown a lot, so we were we've more we've tripled in size in, in, the, in these past three years. So that's part of it is just natural growth. Yeah. Um, and then for some people, they really like being in the early, early, super messy, like super messy stages of a founding <laughs> company. And they might've just, when, when we started to, to put in systems and some disciplines that EVgo might not have been the place for them. Mm-hmm. So that, that could be why some of the folks decided that they didn't want to hang around. And, you know, it, it's just, I think it's just quite natural. Um, and some people like as EVgo grows even to the next stage, I mean, where we are now, one of the reasons that I love it is that there's no playbook for the business model. We're, we are actually working it out. It is intellectually so interesting. It is so mm. interesting from a, an implementation perspective. And you've got to really, really love that and, and, and thrive on needing to be agile mm-hmm. to, to, to enjoy EVgo. For those that are fairly new to EVgo, what exactly is EVgo? And then what does your footprint look like across the country today? Right, right, right. Great question. So EVgo, we, um, we, site, build, own, and operate charging infrastructure to help accelerate the transition to an electrified transportation future. Um, we have over 800 locations of our fast chargers right now, and that's the away from home where you can charge in 20, 30 minutes, uh, which gives us the largest footprint of any public fast charging company right now with our 800 and growing locations. Um, we, um, what we endeavor to do is create a seamless, reliable, convenient charging experience for any sort of driver when they're needing to charge away from home or away from their workplace. Um, and we're, we're, we're doing pretty well at that. We've got over 220,000 drivers. We're mm-hmm. working really closely with, with the car makers that have made announcements to um, get EVs on the road. So we, you know, we just at the end of July announced a very big partnership with General Motors, who is going to be having uh, over 20 new EVs on the market by 2023. They, in partnership with us, are going to help us triple our, the size of our network over wow. these next few years. Um, we've got partnerships with Nissan. We also, interestingly, we don't own our, the land that our chargers are on. What we hmm. do is we build our chargers where people want to be anyway. Think about like plugging in your phone. Will you plug it in where there's an outlet? 
what we want to do is have chargers conveniently located when you go to the grocery store, when you take your kids to the park. So you can fast charge while, you know, mm-hmm. while, while, while you're actually going to pick up your fish and your eggplant for dinner. And mm-hmm. so again, our, some of our favorite site host partners are Albertsons, um, Safeway and Whole Foods. And mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're, we're cited in a bunch of Walmarts all over. I mean, so like, I, I hope everybody on the call has seen at least one EVgo station. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, the truth is that, that, over 100 million Americans live within a 15-mile drive of an EVgo station right now today. Oh, wow. Yeah, so so again, we're we're big, we're we're everywhere, but we're only a small part of what we're going to be in a few years because, frankly, the market for EVs is taking off. Yeah, um, what do you what do you attribute EVgo's success to to date? Is it is it pure kind of just market factors like the new California legislation that Newsom recently announced? Um, well, yeah, what are the what are the success factors to date? So yes, we're we're in a sector that's important and it's essential infrastructure. So yes, mm-hmm. that's true. But you can have a, a company that doesn't do well that's just mm-hmm. p- that's part of that service. We we do well because of our talent. We have mm-hmm. a great team of people and every single one of our people is mission oriented. They care they care equally about addressing climate change as they do about doing whatever their job is. They're multidisciplined. So we've got engineers and, and, and software programmers and marketers and um, customer care people and great finance people and you know, deal makers on our BD team. So we've got a great multidiscipline team that actually like collaborating with each other. I mean, we've tried to create a culture of collaboration. So they're super, super talented and committed. Um, and we're really, and as I said a moment ago, we're really agile because we're, we're, we're inventing this business model um, as we go, because the, the every month, it's not even every year that goes by the EV market changes, every month that goes by that, you know, there are more EVs and more use cases for charging. I mean, for example, rideshare drivers are now starting to drive EVs. Those folks need to not just charge at night at home. They need to charge once every day away from home and they need to do it fast. So that's a new market segment for us. When COVID hit, delivery drivers for food delivery who drive EVs needed to charge on our network. And that's all happening really rapidly. Company, fleet companies like Amazon who are electrifying their fleets, they need, their, they need charging for their delivery services. So every month that goes by, there's a new opportunity for us to provide a service that's needed for electrification of transportation. What It Takes is brought to you by AES, a Fortune 500 global energy company. AES imagines a future that is 100% carbon-free, and it's doing the work today to make that future a reality. AES is partnering with organizations to help them transition to new, smarter, and cleaner solutions, all while continuing to meet their energy needs and give them a competitive edge. Creating a greener future for everyone means working together globally across industries of every kind, from utilities in Hawaii to corporations in Virginia and at every stage of development. In the U.S. alone, AES's clean energy business is leveraging its 2.5 gigawatt portfolio of renewables and 12 gigawatt development pipeline to co-create and scale innovative solutions like solar, wind, energy storage, and hybrid clean technology portfolios to make the biggest impact to both your sustainability and business goals. AES is setting a new standard for the future of energy. Learn more about how you can join at AES.com. What It Takes is also supported by DLA Piper. DLA Piper has been instrumental in Powerhouse's growth and success as it has been for hundreds of companies changing the way we power our world. DLA Piper's team of technology sector lawyers supports clients with their legal needs across the globe. 
As demand for zero-carbon energy and other climate solutions grows, startups and established companies in the energy sector are looking to their lawyers to provide more than just legal knowledge. They're also seeking in-depth sector know-how and innovative solutions to the challenges they face. DLA Piper's energy lawyers deliver focused, creative sector advice wherever in the world clients need it. Being both global and local, DLA Piper understands the technical, geographical, commercial, and geopolitical factors that shape the energy sector. DLA Piper also has a podcast called Beyond the Curve, which features topics and guests from across the business spectrum. Its goal is to help businesses and communities navigate the challenges they face in today's world. You can find Beyond the Curve on podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, and find more about programs and publications at dlapiper.com. How has COVID impacted EVgo? I definitely understand, yeah, delivery drivers needing to charge, and, and I can see the rise there. Um, I imagine maybe grocery store visits or those types of trips are down. How, how, how has that impacted the company? Yeah. So when we started shelter in place, our throughput, you know, we measure gigawatt hour throughput. Basically, we're dispensing kilowatt hours on very nice, fancy, beautiful equipment. Um, our throughput went down over 60% because people weren't driving. They were staying at home. And we predicted at that point, oh, it's going to be at least, you know, by the end of 2020, maybe halfway into 2021 before we get back to those February 2020 levels. Interestingly, we're almost back at February levels now. Hmm. Even though many people are driving less, here's why. More people are buying EVs. What's fascinating mm-hmm. is that even in spite of the economic slowdown, or maybe because of the skies are bluer in so many urban areas, EV sales are doing all right. So, what, you know, it, it's just fascinating to watch. So we're, we're coming back more quickly. We, interestingly as well, we continue to construct our stations. So because the stations are disaggregated in relatively small footprint, we can actually d- continue construction with PPE that's very, very safe and consistent with all the COVID rules. Um, when COVID, when the, when the shelter in place first was announced, we also introduced a COVID care plan for essential workers, which were basically mm-hmm. just covering our costs for EV drivers that are doctors or or grocery store workers, and um, and we've still got you know maybe twelve hundred twelve hundred folks or so that are on that plan. In January of this year, EVgo was acquired by LS Power, a U.S. power and energy infrastructure owner. LS Power acquired EVgo from Vision Ridge Partners, who previously acquired EVgo from NRG back in 2016. How did this acquisition come about? Well, we, you know, as a growth equity company, um, we were out doing a capital raise to get our next round of capital, and we met the lovely people at LS Power. Um, and I guess they were so taken by um, EVgo's vision and, and our opportunity and our ability to deliver. I don't know. We'd have to ask them what they were taken mm-hmm. by. But they. But I remember getting a call from Dave Nanas, the head of co, um, the co-head of private equity there, and he's like, Kathy, you know, we, we're really excited. I said, Well, so are we. You guys seem great. I said, How would you feel if we if we just bought you? I was like. That's you know that's not my decision, but that sounds great to me. And anyway, so they worked it out, and they then and we're now fully owned by LS Power, and it's great because they are super excited about the growth of the sector. Um, they are, as you may know, uh, uh, invested in um, all sorts of renewables and in storage and the and in demand response. But EVgo was their first foray into the transportation sector. Uh, given the cost of deploying and maintaining the electric chargers, which I know is costly, um, as of this spring, EVgo is still not yet profitable. What's the long-term business model vision? And then do you have a sense of when you anticipate being profitable? Yes. Yeah, so we are, you know, as, as, as I mentioned, we're everywhere. We're across the country and we have markets that are quite profitable right now where there are lots of EVs. 
We have other markets where there haven't been many EVs that have been purchased that are not profitable yet. And so we're just waiting. We built ahead of demand in those places. We're waiting for the car companies to actually manufacture more cars and get those out there um, so that, so that those, markets, those, those markets turn for us as a fast charging company. And we're working, we continue to work really, really closely with government and with the car companies because government, EVgo, the car companies, we all know that if drivers don't see the infrastructure out there, mm-hmm. then they may not feel comfortable going and making a purchase of an EV. So we're, we're continuing to work in partnership with others to build ahead of demand. So look, it's all a function of when, when there's a critical mass of EVs on the US roads. And that's, you know, that's, you, your, your guess is as good as mine. Does that happen next year? Does it happen a couple of years from now? Not sure, but there's, it's undoubtedly happening soon. Yeah. I think, correct me if I'm wrong about Half a percent of all cars in the U.S. are now electric, but the projections for the growth rate has always been behind reality. Like every projection that we've had around EV EV adoption has been behind reality. Is that right? Yeah. And, well, and it, I think we have the same story in solar, right? Like with the <laughs> the costs, the costs came mm-hmm. down way faster than the analysts thought the cost would come down in solar because the markets grew fast. I, I, the, the EV sales, look, all car sales, when the pandemic happened, all car sales dropped off. EV sales dropped much less. And mm-hmm. what it, to what do we attribute that? Part of it is, as I mentioned earlier, maybe the blue sky thing. People thought, wow, I can finally see the sky. Now I'm going to do my bit. Another part of it is just maybe reaching an inflection point where most people either have driven driven an EV or ridden an EV and that familiarity, just, just that like, huh, and this is actually really fun. Third thing, I guess, is availability of lots of models. And the fourth thing is that the costs have come down. So all of those things are coming together. I think we're fast approaching an inflection point on EVs. Agreed. Almost every founder we've interviewed on what it takes recalls a time when they thought their company would fail, whether that was, you know, months or weeks or days or hours away. Um, were there times you thought EVgo would fail? I know. And that does, then that's not to be cocky. I, we're an essential industry in, in, in a sector that's transforming. So all I would wonder about is, are we going to grow more slowly? Or are we going to need to grow more more quickly? And so we've designed a business model that can basically accordion up or down fairly easily. We look at our unit economics really closely. So I never, I mean, we have assets in the ground that work, that charge cars. They may be charging fewer cars if there aren't as many EVs out there. But no, I never thought that we our business model would fail ever. You strike me as someone who is just like so put together, so on it. Like I imagine you have a very clear to-do list every day and at the end of the day, you check everything off. Um, but I'm curious, what is what is the hardest part of being a CEO? Oh, I like sit... I love I love the diversity of responsibility that I have. Like I like I like the strategy and the tactics. I like I like thinking about new BD deals and and what technology we're going to deploy. And and, per, and I think about personnel issues. So I I kind of love it all. The thing that I is hardest for me, I suppose, is constructively modulating my impatience. Mm-hmm. Um, because I want it all to happen more quickly. I want to grow mm-hmm. more. I want to grow more quickly. I want the deals to get cut more quickly. I want things. I want the technology to arrive more quickly. I like. I I want us to address climate change. I know we have it in us to do that. I know that we have the technology now. So I know we need to just organize ourselves. And so I'm impatient. And that that as I say that channeling the impatience to be a constructive as a leader is probably my biggest challenge um, that I have. (laughs) 
The next question is one that I ask every What It Takes guest because there is nothing more annoying than this question only being asked of women. Uh, the question is, so you're a CEO, you're a partner to your husband, you're a parent. Uh, how, how do you and how have you balanced those three things? Oh, great partnership, great, great marriage, great collaboration with my husband. I mean, we've been married, Robin and I have been married for 33 years. Um, you know, as I mentioned, we were parents in our young 20s where we were both working. We've always both worked. Um, sometimes, you know, Rob, I mean, and look, Robin has always been the center board when I've had crazy demanding episodes in my career. And, 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 you know, we have a couple of great grownups because he's, he's been able to be that center board. So it's, it's that kind of, it's that collaboration and that understanding and that willingness to sort of, you know, do all hands on deck when you need to. Along the same lines, since launching What It Takes, we've interviewed 14 women and 19 men. About half of the women we've interviewed, including yourself, are parents, whereas all 19 of the men are parents. Uh, what do you make of that? We need to do better. I mean, if, if I mean, I have a I have a daughter-in-law in her 30s, and you know, she just finished a double master's degree from MIT, went to Stanford undergrad, and she's thinking about her career. And it should just be easier for Laura to make it, make a choice that not just to not make a choice to say, I am, you know, if she feels like it, I'm ready to be a parent. Um, and if she, if she doesn't, that's fine. But if she feels like it, and I know probably many in her cohort at MIT feel the same way. Um, so we, as companies, we, as institutions need to make it easier. It's, it, it helps society. It helps all of us as workers. It helps our economy if we've got families and children and, and stable children. So our, our structures are not there yet. Yeah, well said. Uh, last question before we close with our high voltage round is what does EVgo look like in five years and what does mobility look like in five years? Look, EVgo, I think we're just going to keep going and, and continue to be the preeminent charging infrastructure provider in the United States. I mean, and, and again, as the market evolves and grows, we want to provide that set of services to whatever drivers, whoever drivers, whatever companies have EV drivers, like so that they can charge reliably, conveniently. I think we're going to have autonomous vehicles, which are going to be interesting. I think we're going to have last mile electrified choices that uh, like scooters so that people can move around locally. And I think we'll probably have less day-to-day -day commuting. I mean, one of the weird things that COVID has taught us is that you don't necessarily need to commute into an office every single day, Monday to Friday. So mobility, I think, is going to look more diverse and, and, um, than, it, than it did 12 or 18 months ago. And, and I'm looking forward to that. Mm -hmm. uh, high Voltage Round, this is always my favorite part. Quick questions, quick answers, starting with, if you were an animal, what animal would you be and why? Oh, gosh. Um, well, I've got a bobcat um, on my little my little property that I'm sitting on now, and they oh, are wow. um, really. Um, he seems to have a lot of fun, like running around and 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 very 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 cocky, and and just sort of drinks the water of, from the fountain and then goes and, and scrambles around. Oh wow, yeah. that's amazing! Yeah. Um, if you had to start a new career tomorrow, what would it be? <laughs> I think, I think what I would do is urban planning. Hmm. Um, I, I, I'm really, really interested in the, in the thing that we just touched on is what is the new urban form given hmm. changes in culture? Really interesting. Uh, other than yourself, to whom do you attribute your success? Um, I, my husband, who's super supportive and my, my dad, my dad taught me tons of lessons at his knee when he was doing his homework and I was doing mine. Hmm. What is the best investment you've ever made? Uh, the best investment I ever made is in my marriage. <laughs> oh, gosh. 
Um, you didn't give me any heads up on these. These are, <laughs> these are great. I'm, I'm going to use these at like the next time we can have a cocktail party in person. <laughs> what, um, what is something that you thought was true that you no longer believe? Something that is, I used to think was true that I yeah. don't. <laughs> it, it will take me to a dark place about... Hmm. Um, Politics. I mean, again, I, I'm, I'm not sure I believe that you can change some people's minds with data. Mm-hmm. And I used to think, I used to think you could persuade anybody to change their mind. And mm. I'm not so sure. There's, there's some set of people that you can't. And that, that makes mm-hmm. me very sad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When are you your best self? When I'm excited about a big challenge that I'm not sure how I'm going to address. Mm. What is your worst trait? Uh, I dispense with amenities when I'm busy. So like, like forget the good mornings and the highs. I just go right into the substance and it's not ideal. Mm. Uh, if there was just one person who was going to hear this podcast, who would you want it to be? Oh, golly. Uh, who do we need to convince is the question. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to think somebody that's convincible, Emily. Mm. Um, who, who would you want? Let me put that back on you. Who would you want? You have, you, cause you have, you have this latitude. You, you talk to all sorts of interesting people who needs convincing mm. that you've had a hard time with. Um, I think I would, I would want somebody not so much to convince them, but to inspire them. I think one of the biggest factors in, uh, in, in girls and women choosing careers is if they see role models. So it's like you said earlier, it's not about the data. It doesn't matter how many classes you take. It's do you see people in the position that you hope to be in? And if you do, then you feel like it's possible. So if you can see it, you can be it. And so I would want someone to see you in this role and say, okay, I see Kathy. Therefore I can, I can do this too. I can follow this path. Huh? That's nice. No, that, 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 and that's it. your take on that is really interesting. I, I, I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because? Companies fail because they, um, they have blinders on and don't look at all of the information available. If you really knew me, you would know? That I'll never stop going. <laughs> Success is? Success is... Um, Achieving, achieving things that are going to be good for the world that m- most people think can't be achieved. Mm, I love that. If I could have done one thing differently, I would have. Golly, I, 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 I don't have many regrets. Maybe that's um, what would I do differently? No, I don't. I don't. I don't. I, I can't think of. I, I don't have regrets. I feel like I'm really, really. That, that there's something, there's some, I'm sure that there's something clinical, psychological about that, <laughs> but no, I'm good. No, um, <clears throat> other guests have said that as well. And, yeah. and yeah, I can relate. It's like, I'm here because of every choice I made and I'm happy where I am. So, and I take responsibility for it. Right. So, yeah. you, I, I, you know, you learn, you learn from the things that you don't, that aren't great, but mm-hmm. you learn from them. And that's what you do. Yeah. Uh, if the world knew me for one thing, it would be. <sighs> well, I get this feedback a lot. My enthusiasm. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm, I'm just reporting back like, oh, you're so enthusiastic. So I guess that's what the world knows me for is my enthusiasm. Uh, last two, I'm most proud of? Um, I'm most proud of my kids, my grownups. Mm. They're fabulous, wonderful, interesting, curious, hardworking people. And I'm so proud of them. Mm. Last question. To build a successful company, what it takes is? What it takes. It takes 
hard work, um, imagination, and a little bit of luck. Kathy, I have been a fan of yours for a very long time. I'm so honored to get to know you better through this conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, back at you, Emily. Keep up, keep doing this great stuff. I'm Thank a huge you. fan. Thank you. You can listen to all our What It Takes interviews since 2017 right here. And join us for new stories of founders who are building a carbon-free future, their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. We're launching new episodes monthly throughout 2021. Subscribe everywhere you get your podcasts. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse in partnership with Postscript Audio. Powerhouse partners with leading corporations and investors to help them lead the next century of clean technology innovation. Our fund, Powerhouse Ventures, invests in founding teams, building innovative software to rapidly transform our global energy and mobility systems. You can learn more at powerhouse.fund. That's powerhouse.fund. Our executive producer is Stephen Lacey. Our producers are Jamie Kaiser, Rye Story Fisher, and Emma McDonough. Sean Marquand mixed the episodes and composed our music. I'm Emily Kirsch. This is What It Takes.